Yesterday, our sovereign, ever-gracious Lord took to himself our brother in Christ, friend in the gospel, colleague in Northwest Theological Seminary, J. Peter Vosteen. We rejoice that his faith has become sight, that his hope has become reality, that is not yet has become now. The Lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, face to face. And that place his Lord Jesus had prepared for him. I dedicate our study this afternoon to his memory, and I thank God for him. Obadiah, verse 11. You will notice in this verse, particularly in the New American Standard translation of it, that there is a pattern that you can see in the English translation. There are two parallel elements and those elements parallel in succession. Notice the prepositional phrase on the day, which is duplicated or repeated. And the and clauses and foreigners and cast lots, which in the Hebrew is called a vav consecutive, meaning an and which consecutively carries on the narrative or the imagery of the verse. So, on the day that they stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and on that day, consecutive, going on, going on with what occurred on that day, foreigners entered his gate, and also on that day, consecutive, cast lots for Jerusalem. You get the idea. The Hebrew gives us this kind of graphic image of what occurs on the day. Now the question is, what day is being described? What event is being described as occurring on the day? And what year would that be, Ben? This is 586 B.C., which is being described in the poetry of verse 11. All right, now the next question. From what perspective is the day being described? Is this a historic chronicle? From what perspective is the day being described? Ben? No. From the perspective of the witness. Pardon? True, but I'm talking about the human witness. 
Obadiah himself is an eyewitness from the perspective of an eyewitness. So this is an eyewitness account of what occurred on that day in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was attacked or when it collapsed after an attack by the army of Nebuchadnezzar. So we have a first-hand report. And that first-hand or eyewitness report extends to verse 14, where you also see the phrase, in the day or on the day, it could be translated, on the day of their distress. All right, now, verses 12 to 14 also have duplication. You'll notice as you scan down verses 12, 13, and 14 that you can pick out the duplications even in your English translation. You will notice the recursive do not warnings. Over and over again you find that phrase in those three verses. The do not warnings are in fact descriptions. They are descriptions of what was done to Jerusalem, confirmed by verse 15, as you have done, notice, as you have done. So verses 12 to 14, which seem to suggest that that is in the future, is actually a kind of future present. Hebrew prophecy has that tendency And here's an example of it here. Obadiah is an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And he provides here a first-hand report of the tragic death of the nation. Now this prophet's record takes its place alongside other eyewitness accounts of the death of the city on Mount Zion, the most extensive of which are found in 2 Kings 24:18 through chapter 25:21, and in Jeremiah 52, which in some ways is a virtual duplication of 2 Kings 24:18 and following. But we shouldn't forget the book of Jeremiah's Lamentations, which also is an account of the destruction of Jerusalem. But let's take a look at Jeremiah 52 since it's closest to turn back there. And let's make some comments on this passage, which as I indicated is a replication with slight variation, very slight variation in the Hebrew, a replication of 2 Kings 24, 18 and following. Now, if you are with me, Jeremiah 52, verse 1, reads, Zedekiah, that's the king of Judah, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He reigned 11 years, so what would the last year of his reign have been? 586 B.C. Now we can do a little math. 
since that's his last year, what was his first year? 597. How did you get that, Bob? You add 11 because that's what the text says and come to the year 597. All right, now, with respect to 597, what else happened in that year? Obviously, it's the first year of Zedekiah, first year of his kingship, he doesn't come to be king unless somebody else is not king. So that means in 597, there was a change of kings. Now, who might that have been? And what happened to him in that year 597 that Zedekiah took over as king of Judah? Jehoiakim, yes. What can you tell me about Jehoiakim, Ben? Right, good. Jehoiakim, who succeeded who? Jehoiakim, yes. M, N after M. Jehoiakim. Who may have been assassinated in that year 597. It's still unclear. The reason we suggest that he was assassinated is Jeremiah says that he was given a donkey's or a mule's burial, which means that he was treated with contempt uh, with respect to his funeral. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> that uh, aside, <clears throat> Ben mentioned that Jehoiakim N only ruled about three months. Why such a short reign? He was killed too, wasn't he? No, he was not killed. Look at the end of Jeremiah 52. While well, you have it open there. He was taken away by, by Babylon, who's king? Nebuchadnezzar, correct. He was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar after his short reign, and where did they take him? To Babylon, and he was put under house arrest to put in prison. And the end of Jeremiah and the end of Second Kings 25 tells the story of how he was lifted up or that house arrest was removed during the reign of a subsequent emperor or ruler of Babylon whom the Bible calls Evil Merodach. Okay, now, in 597, well, let's put it this way. In 586, let's start this way. We have the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, okay? In 597, Jehoiakim is carried off by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian. We have a Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, okay? Now... Let's go on to read a little more of this 52nd chapter of Jeremiah 52. Verse 4 
says that it came about in the ninth year of his reign that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and his army with him and he besieged Jerusalem. So the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign would be what year? 588. Very good. So the siege was more or less a year, a year and a half, depending upon whether we're using accession years, which count for full years or not. That's a complicated issue, so I'll leave it aside. But nonetheless, <clears throat> uh, the, the chronology works out uh, very accurately. Okay, over to verse 12 now of Jeremiah 52. On the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. All right, so if the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar is 586, what's his first year? How do we get that? Okay, we'll take 586 and add 19, and what do we come up with? Six oh five BC. <clears throat> now that's another auspicious year in the history of Judah and Jerusalem <clears throat> because that is actually the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that is, his reign as emperor <clears throat> of Babylon. And it's also a year in which he came to Jerusalem according to the Bible. Not according to the liberal scholars of today, but according to the Bible, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, Jeremiah, and some other passages indicate that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem in 605. His first year, he actually became emperor while this siege was going on. Well, we didn't mention who else was taken away into captivity in Jehoiakim, who was particularly famous. Does anybody remember who else went into exile along with Jehoiakim? Not Daniel. When did, so since you raised it, when did Daniel go? <clears throat> I was asking, somebody else went with Jehoiakim in 597. So you were answering the question of 605. That's right. So, Ben was ahead of us, anticipating me, which is fine. <clears throat> 605 is the deportation of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <clears throat> and the first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, which, once again, I remind you, liberal scholars do not believe in. <clears throat> but back to 597. <clears throat> so, the prophet Daniel... He's taken away in the first siege in 605. The second siege is 597, and King Jehoiakim is taken. Who else is taken captive? Hmm? I'm thinking of an individual, prominent individual, biblical character. Yes, who's the prophet that was taken captive in the second siege of Jerusalem? Nope. 
Ezekiel. Jeremiah was never captured by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar set him free because he had prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezekiel was taken off to Babylonian captivity in 597 along with King Jehoiakim. So you date Ezekiel from 597, you date Daniel from 605, and you date Nebuchadnezzar from 586, 597, and 605. And a good bit of that chronology is here in this uh, 52nd chapter of Jeremiah. So the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 12 is the year 586. His first year is 605. And Daniel is captured in that year. All right, so when you come to read these parts of Scripture, Jeremiah 52, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 24, 18, and following to 25, do the math. You can actually figure out the dates. The dates have been, have been verified by uh, conservative scholars, the Bible is accurate, but even more than that, <clears throat> you can place some of the drama with the dates. You can see <clears throat> in your imagination what's happening. You can see this Babylonian siege <clears throat> in the 11th year of Zedekiah. You can see this siege <clears throat> in <clears throat> the first year of Jehoiakim, the first months of Jehoiakim, a siege which also took Ezekiel into Babylon, and he prophesied all of his prophecy, <clears throat> all 48 chapters written in Babylon, not written in Judea, not written in Judah, written in Babylon. He's an exile. <clears throat> Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel writes his prophetic and apocalyptic material while he's in Babylon. <clears throat> so he goes in the first siege. Ezekiel and Jehoiakim go in the second siege, <clears throat> and the balance of the nobility uh, goes in the third and final siege when Nebuchadnezzar levels or raises Jerusalem to the ground. <clears throat> Any questions about that? <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> notice one more structural item back in Obadiah. So we're back to the prophet, verse 11. Compare verse 11 with verse 14. You should see a verb in verse 11 that reoccurs in verse 14. It's actually in the first line of both verses. Do you see it? Stand and stood. Stood in verse 11. Stand in verse 14. A potential inclusio around these four verses. One author, one commentator has labeled it a literary inclusio. Well, let's treat it as an inclusio. Whether that's precisely accurate or not, we'll not debate at this point. But let's treat it that way so we have an envelope in between. The the verses 11 to 14 are an envelope between the opening part of the inclusio in verse 11 and the closing part of the inclusio in verse 14. What does the envelope 
demonstrate or reveal. Well, as you scan the verses between 11 and 14, you're impressed with that staccato of the repetition word, repetitive, repeated word, I should say, day, day, day. In fact, you can count them up. There are ten occurrences of that Hebrew word day, which is in Hebrew, yom, from verses 11 to 14. But you'll notice verse 15. We pointed this out last time. We have to return to it this time. We notice in verse 15 that the day also is enlarged. The day has no attribute in verses 11 to 14. It's just simply the day. But in verse 15, it has the attribute of the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. The difference then between day in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, and day in verse 15 is that additional phrase, the day of the Lord. There is a difference. There is a difference with a little ironic twist. <clears throat> this day in verse, verses 11 to 14 is imminent. It is the imminent day of Jerusalem's destruction, a day which is graphically present to <clears throat> the eyes of the eyewitness Obadiah the prophet himself. But that day, in verse 15, is distant. Not imminent, but distant. Not graphically present, but remotely future. This day is now, verses 11 to 14, that day, verse 15, is not yet. In order to confirm my suggestion in verse 15, you'll notice that the day of the Lord is focused upon all nations, not just the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> All right, now since Obadiah has used these two terms in proximity, that is, he's used them close together, <clears throat> we're reminded <clears throat> that the not yet day is embedded in the now day. The not yet day is embedded in the now day. It is integrally intertwined with it, as if the now day is a preview. The now day is a preview in miniature of the not yet day. What destruction now comes is a prophecy of the destruction which is yet to come. <clears throat> so there is not a hard and fast distinction in the Old Testament concept of the Yom Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. It has a fluid, or as Gerhardus Voss would say, a plastic significance. <clears throat> that is, it's intertwined with the eschatological now and not yet, <clears throat> even in the Old Testament context. So here you see it with Obadiah's use. The imminent day of Jerusalem's destruction is a foretaste 
of the proximate day or the consummate day of God's wrath being poured out on all the nations of the earth. <clears throat> so in the, the raising, <clears throat> the looting, the burning, the destruction, the killing of the <clears throat> Judeans, in that event, you see a prophecy by anticipation of the consummation of the world, judgment of the nations, God's wrath being poured out on the whole cosmos. <clears throat> That's a reminder. That's a warning. That's an invitation to flee the wrath to come. In the now, remember that the not yet is hidden. It is anticipated. It is projected. Now, later on, we want to talk about 70 A.D. in this regard, but I'll hold off on that until we get to it. But right here, I want you to see this interrelationship, this interface between the now and the not yet. The now of 586 B.C. is a miniature projection, a miniature realization, a miniature graphic portrayal of the not yet of the final destruction of the cosmos. Go ahead, Randy. <clears throat> It's near because it's imminent. Once again, he's speaking out of that historic future, that present future. So the judgment day of the Lord is imminent. Yes. We're talking about at the final judgment, right? You can even say that, yes, it is imminent because no one knows the day. Right. So it, it, it is as close as tomorrow, potentially. Yeah, because the time, the time is not an issue. The length of time is not an issue. If you had told Paul that Jesus wouldn't be back for 2,000 years, he wouldn't have had a problem with it because the time is not an issue. It's, it's the event. It's the event. After the now event of Christ taking the judgment that we deserve on the cross and being vindicated by his resurrection so not to be judged anymore, so we are not judged any longer because of his resurrection. In that now event, the future event is anticipated. But that's the only event left to occur. It could be 2,000 years, it could be 10,000 years. But the only other event to occur in the prophetic vision, in the New Testament prophetic vision, in the Pauline prophetic vision the only event which is yet to occur is the final curtain. Then our life is only, what, 70, 80 years, so it's always near for us. You know, yes, in that, in that sense. Okay? All right, now, <clears throat> Obadiah's language here is visual. This is a vision, remember verse 1. It is graphic. It is eye-popping. We view the Edomites aloof in the background of the Babylonian siege engine. Can you see them in your imagination? Can you see this picture that he's painting for you? 
on his great tapestry, we see these same Edomites passive, inactive, as stranger aliens carry off the treasure of Jerusalem. The active ones are the Babylonians. The active ones are the soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar's army. Edom is passive. So we see the Babylonians breach of the gates of the city of Jerusalem. You see them break through that massive gate on the east side. The roll of the dice as the booty is divided among the spoilers. You see them, soldiers, bidding, arguing, fighting over the spoils. You see them in the streets. You see that in your imagination. And as this consensual, onlooking passivity makes Edom an accessory after the fact because they aid and abet it by doing nothing to stop it. In fact, the bloodlust, ironically, will be too great a temptation for them. Edom will move from passive onlooker to active participant in the looting. Edom will move from passive bystander to active divider of the booty and fighting over the spoils with everybody else. Edom will pour through the breaches after the Babylonians have pierced the walls. Edom will take his sword to his brother Jacob and twisting the blade in violence, he will destroy his twin. Edom will become part of the visionary tapestry even though at the opening of the scene he is passively standing on the sidelines. The attackers are, according to this verse, strangers and foreigners. That's a parallel expression, synonymous, synonyms of one another. The aloof onlookers are Brothers of Jacob. Notice verse 10. This language is also reflected in Lamentations chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Jeremiah recounts the collapse of the city to alien armies. The fact that Edom is named in the previous verses of Lamentations, namely Lamentations 4, 21 and 22, joins that brother nation once again to the enmity which destroyed his twin. The brother as one of the foreign adversaries. Notice the irony in the juxtaposition that Obadiah has placed in the narrative. Now we come to a matter of dispute, small matter of dispute. Name of the translation of the word wealth which occurs in the New American Standard in the second line of verse 11. The alternate possibility is a translation which reads nobility. On the day that strangers carried off his nobility or his noble persons. I'm going to side with the New American Standard here. I usually do anyway. But here, I'm going to side with it because of verse 13. I want you to notice verse 13, where that word wealth 
And it is the same Hebrew word as in verse 11, where that word wealth occurs once again. Do not loot their nobility. No, the focus is not on persons. The focus is on wealth as an object. So, the parallel between the two leans the translation away from nobility in terms of persons. I'm not denying that you can loot persons, but it's not the persons who are being looted that Obadiah is featuring. It's the wealth that's being looted, very much like in the previous verses where he's describing Edom's being looted of her wealth or treasures and secret. It's the wealth itself, not the persons who have it. So, this is a minor quibble, but nonetheless... I think the New American Standard has translated in in the state of recursive repetition, parallel imagery, parallel translation. Now, the sequence of Edom's apparent passivity, that is, that he looks on as Babylon turns the screws, the sequence of Edom's apparent passivity includes initial onlooking, Beholding the inaugural looting of after the gates of Jerusalem are split, ruptured, and breached. But then, like vultures to the carrion and jackals to the leavings, Edom rushes in too. Edom rushes in as one of the enemies of his brothers. Inactivity is too much to resist. Too much loot and wealth and treasure is up for grabs. Passivity becomes activity as Edom passes from onlooker to one of them. One of them, verse 11. Active despoiler of Jerusalem and vigorous violator of brother Jacob's nation, capital city, citizens, wealth, property, Dignity. Edom, now on this day of destruction, joined to Babylon. Edom united to the enemy of God's people. Edom united to the enemy of his twin brother. The fraternal bond exchanged for a foreign bond. The sibling relation exchanged for a snuff relation. The twin become the terminator as one of them captures in visual imagery the irony, the treachery of reverse identification. Reverse identification. Edom as one of the pagan nations outside the covenant of God. Edom as one of the unbelieving heathen peoples who despise the living and true God, bending low before images of wood and stone. Edom's identity as a son of Isaac and Abraham completely transposed into a stranger, a stranger to the covenant, without God and without loyalty to the bonds of blood. 
heartless and cruel to the sons and daughters of his twin, Edom joins himself to the enemy, the diabolic enemy of the people of God, the city of God, the riches of God, the grace of God. Edom makes a covenant with the enemy and deals out death to his blood brother. A covenant with the enemy, a covenant with death, to deal out death and then to receive death in return as one of them, yea, as you have done, O Edom, so it will be done to you. Verse 15. This is not the brotherhood to which we belong. Seed of Esau, seed of Ishmael, seed of the serpent. A paternity which corrupts every pagan and heathen soul. You are, O Edom, as one of them. No, we are related to the seed of Jacob, who is the seed of Isaac, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the seed of the woman. That seed, the second and eschatological Adam, who is the son of God and our elder brother. He is begotten in life, eternal life, which life he incarnates in history so as to unite and identify his elect sons and daughters, not with violence, but with shalom, not with treachery, but with loyal grace, not with destruction, but with justification, not with ignominy, but with glory. If we are strangers and foreigners or aliens upon the earth, it is because the eschatological son of Jacob has made us pilgrims of his historical pilgrimage. And he has made us residents of his heavenly session and possession. The gates of that heavenly and eternal city can never be breached by the enemy. Its riches and treasures can never be plundered or looted by the evil one. Its invitation and realization to all who have ears to hear is do not stand afar off, afar aloof from the city of light and life and immortality. Do not stand afar off, but draw near. Come near unto God in Christ Jesus and receive an eternal gift, an eternal inheritance in Jacob's seed, Jacob's seed who is God, God the Son, our precious Savior, brother and friend, our identification. Any questions? Comments? Randy?
notice verse 9. Your mighty men will be cut off. A sufficient army to be called mighty. Sufficient soldiers trained to be called mighty men. Very much like David's mighty men. His band of guerrillas, though this nation would have had to have a standing army. To protect its interests, its trade routes, its economic vitality and prosperity. How large? Anybody's guess, but large enough to be adequate to protect its self-interest. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Correct. Uh, it wouldn't be wrong to describe him as a prophetic narrator, but his prophecy is not about the immediate event. It's not about the now in the now time only. <clears throat> it's also about the future. So he is projecting out of the now the future, and in the now he is anticipating the future. The two of them interface. And you see that most particularly in verse 21, the last verse of the prophecy, which we referred to a number of times already in our study. And we will refer to it once again today. So keep that comment in mind as we uh, will look at verse 21 later on briefly, but we'll still look at it. Take your break. Verse 12. We pointed out the bracket pattern, perhaps even a literary inclusio of verses 11 to 14. Now notice an additional bracket feature in verses 12 and 14. As you notice, the last line of verse 12 and the last line of verse 14. The phrase, in the day of their distress, is an exact Hebrew duplication. So, verse 12 has its own internal symmetrical structure. There are six lines, and in fact, the New American Standard places it in six lines. Six lines in three pairs. Two pairs per per line, or two lines per pair, I should say. Each pair containing a negative or a not particle, the word al in Hebrew. These do not pairs, three of them in this verse, are imperatives or actually technically called jussives, a kind of imperative. They are commands of prohibition addressed by the prophet actually the Lord God, through the prophet, to Edom. And from the force, these are intense, vivid verbal expressions. These are very strong expressions. From the force of these imperatives, it is as if Obadiah is standing at the siege of Jerusalem as the forces of destruction gather for the attack. And he warns the Edomites not to get involved with their ally 
Babylon and pile on their brother Jacob. Do not, do not, do not. This is masterfully vivid visual presentation of the existential act, by which I mean Obadiah records the participation of Esau in Jacob's destruction as if it were future, when in fact the experience has already occurred. The event is existentially past. Do not, but Esau has already done it, as verse 15 plainly indicates. Now, our visual tapestry, remember we're creating the panels of this visual tapestry coincident with Obadiah's note that he has received a vision from God by way of revelation. Our visual tapestry portrays a scene of consummation while the text suggests a scene of mere anticipation. Obadiah blends the two, making the anticipation prophetic of the consummation. Do not anticipates the fall of Jerusalem, which is the consummation of the do-nots. The fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem itself exegetes the do-not anticipation. The existential experience of the prophet Obadiah is woven into the collapse of the city. What is expected, existentialized as done, what is done, existentialized as what was expected. Obadiah here, by the use of his verbal tenses and his imagery, is demonstrating his mastery as a poet of, of Hebrew imagery, as well as a master of, pro- of prophetic revelation. This is this, shall we say, idealization or identification even with the character and the narrative style of the prophet himself, which is displayed existentially, epexegetically, and consummately here in this imagery. Now, the verse itself portrays Esau's attitude, Esau's mindset, Esau's state of will. He gloats. He rejoices. He boasts upon the day of Judah's destruction. Once again, these are strong verbs. Obadiah uses strong language. These are strong verbs of passion and intense feeling. Certainly not the intense passion of compassion for a brother, a twin blood brother in duress, whereas a fraternal twin would be expected to sympathize with feelings of grief, sadness, and expressions of pity, this twin grieves not, but gloats, sorrows not, but rejoices, pities not, but makes his mouth large, which is the literal sense of the Hebrew, as the New American Standard Margin indicates, makes his mouth large with brash boasts. Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, the sons of Edom, who said on the day, there's that phrase again, on the day of Jerusalem, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. 
The existential attitude of Edom on the day of Jerusalem's destruction rehearsed by the inspired psalmist as well as by the inspired prophet. And we learn from Obadiah's contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel, that this unbrotherly attitude of Esau for Jacob in 586 B.C. was more than sibling-to-sibling hostility. Much more. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard. Now, in the context... Mount Seir, which is described here, is, of course, verse 3 of Ezekiel 35. Mount Seir, of course, is the nation of Edom. Mount Seir, you have spoken arrogantly against me. Mount Seir, you have multiplied your words against me. 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 The me is God himself. It is the Lord God. Esau's gloating and rejoicing and boasting has been directed, according to the prophet Ezekiel, a contemporary of this, it has been directed ultimately against God himself. Jacob is God's son. Judah is God's land. Jerusalem is God's city. Ezekiel 36, verse 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Scorn of soul. That's the will of the Edomites in 586 B.C. Esau and Babylon as well. Scorn God's identification with the child, with the land, with the city of God. And thus they scorn God himself and the grace in which God unites the remnant of his son, his land, and his city unites the remnant according to grace to himself, draws the remnant according to grace into a participation with an eschatological son, an eschatological land an eschatological city, indestructible, eternal in the heavens. Esau's contempt for Jacob is eschatologically negated and eternally annulled in great Jacob's greater son, great Judah's greater land, and great Jerusalem's greater Jerusalem. It is the sun and the land and the city the kingdom which belongs to and is identified with the Lord, La Yahweh, verse 21 of Obadiah once more. It is the sun and the land and the city and the kingdom which belongs, La Yahweh, to the Lord to which we belong, by grace, through faith, with which we are identified, by grace through faith, to which we belong, by which we are identified in Jacob's 
eschatological seed and son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is. He is the bringer of the heavenly land. He is the bringer of the heavenly city. He is the bringer of the heavenly lineage. I will call you my sons and daughters. Obadiah, projecting that day, longing to peer behind the cloud that veils his prophetic sight so that he can see clearly into that future, nonetheless projects it for our edification. We see clearly what he saw through a glass dimly. How privileged we are. How privileged we are to live in these last days and to see the fullness of the times. How privileged we are. What Obadiah would have given to see what we know and have seen recorded in the pages of the New Testament scriptures. That's your inheritance. That's your possession. That is your identity. Because Jesus is your possession. Jesus is your inheritance. Jesus is your identity. Randy? Do we know when or who wrote Psalm 137? Well, let's turn back to Psalm 137 and take a look at the title. And no, we do not, because the title doesn't help us. But it was an exile in Babylon. Someone like Ezekiel who was there by the river Kibar. You see that the title says it's a psalm of captivity, meaning the Babylonian captivity, the 70 years in Babylonian exile. So it's not a prophetic psalm. All the psalms are prophetic even as they're poetic. Right. <clears throat> now, the, ref- the reflection upon the historical circumstance is more the emphasis of the poetic historicity. But bound up in that, as you see, see the, the drama, the rich drama of Revelation, the rich drama of the Bible, the rich drama of poetry, history, and prophecy. The rich drama is that it contains within it that which is beyond itself. Because God is disclosing himself in every word, every verse, every chapter of that Old Testament work. And in disclosing himself, he's showing you some of his own future. So, you can't draw a hard and fast line between prophecy and poetry with respect to the Psalms. If you do, you're going to reduce the Psalms to mere devotional poetry. Yeah, probably a person who was part of the of, of the captivity. So he saw the collapse of the city, was carried off to Babylon, and he's writing out of that experience. That answers my question. But, but in writing out of that experience, you see, with his expression of anticipation, he's anticipating the return of 539. He's returning the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. 
He's anticipating that. And of course, he's anticipating the eschatological return of the sons and daughters of God to the heavenly Jerusalem. All right, verse 13. We're back to Obadiah now. Once again, we begin with the structure of the verse. And you notice the pattern that we've already noticed in verse 12. Three more negatives. Do not. But in this case, do not plus the word disaster at the end of each of the paired lines. Do not enter on the day of their disaster. Do not gloat on the day of their disaster. Do not loot on the day of their disaster. Now, the position of the word disaster in each of those lines, even in your English translation, is the last word in the clause. That is true in the case of the Hebrew text. At the end of the clause is that word disaster. All three clauses end with the word disaster. Staccato. Da-da-da, disaster. Da-da-da, disaster. Da-da-da, disaster. See how Obadiah is masterfully placing the the repeated staccato, we might say machine gun emphasis upon that word disaster and the catastrophe that it was. He makes it jump out of the off the page for you because he repeats it at the end, at the end, very end of each cause. All right, now the first occurrence of disaster. Yes, Bob. No, I think you're reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, they do not follow the same kind of strict identification of Hebrew translation that the New American Standard does. What the verse that you read from that version reads in the New American Standard, don't gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Because the Hebrew word disaster is the very same word three times there at the end of each clause. So the the ESV is actually switching the emphasis that Obadiah is placing upon that word by emphatically putting it at the the stinger point at the end of each clause three times. Right now, the first occurrence of disaster in this verse is vocalized Adam. Adam, is this an intentional pun, an intentional pun on Adam, Edom? Hmm, that's an interesting consideration. Whether we can solve that or not, Edom is a disaster bringer and a disaster receiver. As the sound of your name resembles your actions, so those actions will be sounded out over your name. We could paraphrase verse 15. Now, there's another recursion here in verse 13. It's the phrase, do not gloat, which ties this verse back to verse 12. We also see the word boasting. Verse 12 featured an attitude, 
a disposition. Verse 13 features the actions, the execution of the disposition and attitude. (laughs) Roughly, what Edom thought in verse 12 is what Edom did in verse 13. Do not enter the gates of Jerusalem, but Edom did enter the gates of Jerusalem like the Babylonian foreigners of verse 11 entered the gates of Jerusalem. Edomites acting as Babylonians on that day of distress. Now here is Ezekiel's confirmation of the bloodlust of Edom at the destruction of Jerusalem. We referred to some of this already, but Ezekiel 35 5 and 6. You, Edom, have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. You have not hated bloodshed. To which Amos chapter 1 verse 11 adds a paraphrase. You pursued your brother with the sword. Do not gloat over Judah's calamity. But Edom did gloat over Judah's demise, not only as onlookers outside the walls, but as invaders inside the gates of Jerusalem. Edom boasted of her long-standing enmity against Judah, her vaunted boasts to plunder and ravage the city of Zion. Do not loot Jerusalem's wealth. But Edom did pillage and rob Zion of her treasures, looted her riches, even her hidden wealth, like debased thieves, Jacob's brother steals and ransacks his siblings' valued possessions. And now we come to that phrase, my people, in the first line of this verse. One single Hebrew word, the word ami in Hebrew, my people. The irony, the bold irony which Obadiah features in that word that Esau was once among that body. Esau was once among the Ami, the people of God, my people. Esau was once born into their covenant. Esau was once raised in that covenant. Esau had all the external, the external benefits of the covenant as Ami, my people. But Esau rejected the internal. Esau rejected the internal benefits of that covenant. He spurned the spiritual covenant, though he bore the physical sign of its regeneration in his circumcised flesh. He despised the cutting off of his old nature, his sinful nature, his damnable nature. All this he despised as he despised the seed of the covenant, Jacob, his brother. As he despised the eschatological seed of the covenant, Jacob's greater son, Jesus Christ. As he despised the God and father of that covenant seed, Yahweh himself. No, Write not Ami over Esau and Edom. Write low Ami. Not my people, to borrow the prophet Hosea's famous vocabulary. Write not my people over Esau and his seed Edom. 
how sadly, how tragically will history repeat itself in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., after Israel's rejection of the seed of Jacob, after Israel's rejection of the seed of Isaac, after Israel's rejection of the seed of Abraham, after Israel's rejection of the seed of the woman, is confirmed by the second devastating destruction of Jerusalem and Judea, this time by Titus and the Roman legions. In 70 A.D., Lo Ami, written over the line of physical Israel. So that now Ami belongs to the spiritual Israel, the children of the seed of Abraham, the sons and daughters of regeneration by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the Ami of this present age. Belonging to the Lord is not an ethnic privilege. Belonging to the Lord is not a racial benefit. Belonging to the Lord being one of my people, Ami, comes from grace. It comes from free grace. It comes from grace to the elect out of every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. Yes, even some elect Jews in Jesus Christ, Ami. Elect Arabs in Jesus Christ, Ami. Elect Africans in Jesus Christ, Ami. Elect in Jesus Christ. These are the sons and daughters of the spiritual Israel, the Ami of the end of the age. My people is always on account of election according to grace. Never on the basis of racial or physical or ethnic descent. Never. Not even in Old Testament Israel. But now we even have a marvelous illustration of 70 A.D. Just last week, revealed in the archaeology of the walls of Jerusalem, the breach of the walls by the Romans to the use of their massive catapult ballista balls. Little round boulders launched on huge catapults to smash the walls of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You have a little part of the article published in the Times of Israel, but in your outline you actually have the website where you can see the video of them uncovering these balls in an area which is as large as this sanctuary. And you see that, that, that floor dotted with these little round balls, all of which Josephus recorded, this whole this, this barrage, Josephus recorded in his Antiquities of the Jews so that Josephus' record of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because he was an eyewitness, Josephus' record has been vindicated marvelously by this discovery. Once again, I encourage you to look it up. The video is only a minute and 30 seconds, so it's not a long video. The story shows you some of the pictures, describes how they did it. It's actually found in the property of the Eastern Orthodox Church in Jerusalem. It's where they found it. But nonetheless, here's this marvelous confirmation of what Jesus, our Savior, predicted would happen. 
You would cry for the mountains to fall upon you on that day. And so on. The horror of that catastrophe in 70 A.D. One final note. Verses 12 to 14 are a subunit of this poetic prophecy. We noted how verses 12 and 14 contain a framing bracket around the unit with the word distress, the last word in verse 12 and verse 14. That means that verses 12 and 14 sandwich verse 13. Verse 13 contains its own repetition, enlarging on the enclosed distress. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. The distress of Brother Jacob is a disaster, and that thrice over as a focal expansion of the nature of the distress visited on Judah and Jerusalem. Every time you see a Hebrew writer using recursive repetition, he is doing it for a reason. It is not accidental. This is the language of vividness. This is the language of enclosing enclosing something, sandwiching something between other elements. This is marvelous craftsmanship. Inspired, yes, inspired, inspired, inspired poetry, but nonetheless, it is the genius of the poet whom God chose to use this imagery, to use the gifts of his creative energy and imagination to write this way, to receive the revelation that God had given in this form. This little book is a Hebrew masterpiece. It is utterly Unbelievable how marvelous this style is. This little neglected smallest book of the Old Testament, Obadiah Prophet. Yesterday, our sovereign, ever gracious Lord took to himself our brother in Christ, friend in the gospel, colleague in Northwest Theological Seminary, J. Peter Vostein. We rejoice that his faith has become sight, that his hope has become reality, that his not yet has become now. The Lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life face to face. In that place, his Lord Jesus had prepared for him. I dedicate our study today to his memory and thank God for him. Shall we close in prayer? Lord, we bless you for your inspired word and the word of your inspired prophet. Though it is a kind of machine gun reminder of the destruction of Jerusalem and weighs heavy upon our conscience as we see your wrath poured out upon your disobedient people. We realize, Lord, that it is there for our understanding. It is there to remind us 
But the flames and fires of hell are far worse than the fires of the Babylonian siege guns. Lord God, you have delivered us from that flame and from that fury because your son took it in our place, descending into hell on our behalf, taking your wrath so that we would not have to bear it. How we bless you for this seed of Judah, this seed of Jacob, this seed of Isaac, Abraham, this seed of the woman, this seed of the first Adam, yea, this second and eschatological Adam, how we bless you for him. For he, in fact, is the very content anticipated, projected, and realized in Obadiah's prophet vision. Lord, we have received the fullness of that vision, though we wait for the perfect consummation. And we thank you for your servants who have labored in this gospel, labored in your work, even as we thank you for the life and testimony of Peter Bostein. We ask your blessing upon his family in their time of sorrow, and we rejoice together with them in the promise of the resurrection to eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.